Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Living Word Family, good morning to those of you watching at home. As always, can't wait to see you here. A couple of uh, items uh, to mention to you before I get going in the message today. Uh, A couple of you, several of you have asked uh, how we... uh, how we blessed Joab when he was here, Joab Fisher, a couple weeks ago. We were able to give him $5,000. And he, yeah, you guys gave generously. We always bump that up a little bit out of the missions fund, but thank you for your He was, they always are, he was just absolutely blown away. Uh, just amazed and just asked me, please, please, please remember to thank your people for their generosity. It really uh, helps push them down the road. And uh, if you missed that service, Please listen to it as soon as possible. Uh, Joab, because of uh, his particular area of ministry, he has to be careful sometimes about the things he shares that get out there online. Uh, we got specific permission to stream it and to record it, but he said don't keep it up for very long. You know, take it. He doesn't want it out there forever. So I urge you, uh, maybe sometime this week, uh, find the time to listen to it. I can't imagine there's anybody, anybody in here who heard him and raise your hand if you were here to listen to Joab or if you heard him online. If you haven't heard him, find one of these other people and ask what they thought because I have heard some of the most glowing uh, comments about his message. And Joab is not one of these uh, flashy preachers. He doesn't come up and, and he's, he doesn't, there's not a ton of energy. He's very low-key. He's very uh, humble. And he speaks very, very matter-of-factly, but that, I think, is what impressed me the most. He's talking about tremendous uh, faith adventures and prayer opportunities where he just talks about praying through, praying to the victory, and getting through some very dicey situations simply because of prayer, because he has made prayer a lifestyle. And he was talking about what? Next-level prayer. And getting up to that next level in prayer, he was... Uh, sharing some, some other things with, uh, with Beth and with me over dinner the night before where they just had these tremendous hurdles and uh, things thrown at them. He says, oh, you know, there's nothing to do but pray. So I just went in and I prayed and, you know, prayed till I got, got the victory in prayer and then we went on. And, and again, nothing had changed in terms of circumstances, but he prayed until he got the victory in prayer. And then it was not long after that that I think it was a financial deal, and somebody had given him $45,000 and met this need. It was just incredible. He just trusts this, this trust in God, but it's not something that happened accidentally. Uh, he has prayed continually and, and in a disciplined manner where it has become a lifestyle. And this is something that God is really stirring in this church this year, isn't he? So uh, with that being said, I uh, invite you and encourage you once again to join us uh, any Monday night when we have prayer here at 7 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall. We're usually here for an hour, maybe a little bit more. And on Saturday mornings, men, we meet at 7 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall for prayer. And that's always a wonderful and powerful time. So join us. Uh, don't have to be here every week. If you say, well, I'd come, but I don't want to be there every week. Come, come once. Taste and see that prayer is good. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you this now, too. Uh, 
I've got it in my notes, I think, to mention it again at the end, and that's when you need to be reminded. But uh, the girls' ministry and the rangers are selling pizza, Little Caesars pizza kits, right? And uh, these are really good. I get them every year. I probably shouldn't, but they're, they're, they're re- wonderful. They're quick. They're easy. And I think today is the last day. So if you haven't ordered them, if, if an individual hasn't come up and gotten you to order some, they'll be, there won't be a table out there, but they'll be wandering around. If you want to buy some pizzas, flag one of them down and uh, order. All right. We are doing a series on the basics. Man, it's good to see you guys here. Uh, and I don't have, as I mentioned last week, I don't have a clever title for it. Russ still hasn't gotten back to me with a clever title for my basic series. But uh, just two weeks ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, I talked about uh, what it means to be a Christian. And I say again, this series and a message like that, uh, I guess it has a potential to be offensive. It's like, come on. You know, I'm not a baby. I need, I need meat, not milk. This isn't about telling you things that I think you don't know. This is about you hearing them, I hope, in a fresh way that helps you articulate these things. I think the example I gave in the first message was, I give an altar call every Sunday, uh, knowing that the vast majority of people, if not all of them, are saved already, but I want you to hear the altar call because I help, I, it's part of training you to present the gospel and preparing you to pray with people when they make that decision. Uh, look at uh, 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 13. It says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, many of you know that that word defense or answer in uh, verse 15 up there is the is the Greek word apologia. This is where we get the English word apologetics, talking about a defense of the Christian faith. And it's important, but this, when I say it's important, I mean Christian apologetics. You know, most of you know how much I love apologetics. And it's super important, but this verse isn't saying that everyone needs to be a William Lane Craig or a Ravi or a Lee Strobel. You don't need to be able to marshal arguments that are going to bring every skeptic up short. It's like, well, I've got to have the uh, cosmological argument down for the people who want to know how the Bible can be true and the universe be 17 billion years old at the same time. Uh, You do need to be able to answer people about what? The hope that is in you. All right. They might have some specific historical challenges, some scientific challenges or philosophical challenges, but what you need to be able to answer, according to this verse, your minimum requirement is to tell people why you are a Christian and what makes you a Christian. How do you know you are a Christian? Did you become a Christian because someone convinced you that the fine-tuning of the universe makes it impossible to believe that it sprang into, his exist, uh, into existence uncaused 
Are you a believer because you learned that the genetic code is literally information and that information always originates with a conscience, intelligence? If, if you are, uh, maybe you're a believer because life at its most basic level is so utterly complex that it could not possibly have originated by accident or chance. All of those lines of reasoning are valuable and they have all turned people to Christ. And I think uh, in, in a congregation like this, I, I still find them valuable because they strengthen believers. Like, yeah, you watch, just watching something on TV, some science show, and I love a lot of those. But it's like, well, wait a second, if that's true, uh, it's good to know these lines of argument from the Christian perspective. But the... It's your testimony, again, how you came to Christ, why you came to Christ, that is going to be the most moving and powerful weapon in your arsenal. I've told this story, uh, been a long time since I referenced him, a guy named Art Katz, uh, and I don't know what he's doing, I don't know if he's still around or alive or whatever, I just know that when I listened to his testimony 30 years ago, uh, it really gripped me because he was a young Jewish atheist intellectual. And he just loved wrestling, mostly with the philosophical arguments. But he was angry, he was bitter, and he hated religion, and he particularly hated Christianity because as a Jew, even though he wasn't a religious Jew, he connected Christian, Christians with the Holocaust, as many Jews did. But he, uh, he got his kicks just arguing with religious people, and again, mostly Jews and Christians, and mostly Christians. And he took some time, he was teaching at some university over in Europe, and uh, he had some sort of existential crisis, and he quit, grabbed a backpack, and started hitchhiking all over Europe. And some, sometime, many, many years ago, he was in Zurich, and was pick he, he mentioned that every time he'd get picked up, uh, it was a Christian. These Christians would take him into their homes, would take him into, his, uh, into their cars, drive him places, and they would all try to witness to him. And he got to enjoy that because he would just take them down. He would just demolish them with his philosophical arguments. He was always looking for a fight. And one time, uh, this Christian picked him up in Zurich, and she just kept talking about the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And he said, so I just asked her the one question that, had, that I had been beating Jews and Christians over the head with for years and never gotten a satisfactory answer. I just said, how do you know that God is? He said, she just looked up with this sweet, pale face and said, because he lives in me. And his reaction was, now you'd think an intellectual would have, you can't, uh, that can't be a reason, that's not scientific, that's just feelings, that's just emotivism. You know what his reaction was as he tells the story? He says, she looks at me and says, he lives in me. Bam! I was stunned. And I've never recovered from that response. This is what it took. Somebody with a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ who could say confidently, he lives in me. Now, is that going to leave a mark? Is that going to show up weird on the video? I didn't do it with my uh, ring hand. <laughs> I think, and this is me, I don't have chapter and verse for this, but I think every Christian ought to have a long version and a short version of their testimony so that you can share your testimony in any circumstance. So you don't have the excuse, well, I didn't have a half hour, so I didn't bring Jesus up. Be able to say something in a minute and a half or five minutes or whatever. Uh, this is part of our responsibility. When it said, when, in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready 
to give an account of the hope that is within you, give an answer, give a defense of the hope that is within you. You're not ready by accident. Prepare, practice it. This is what's great about small groups. It's what's great about the, the, the time at the table where we just share these things, things we already know about each other. Tell those stories again and again. It's good to practice on one another. Now, there are two things I want to talk about today, um, at least as they relate to salvation. And those are confession and baptism. Now, we use uh, the word confession or confess in at least three distinct ways in this community of faith. One of them is our confession unto salvation. Every week, almost every week, you hear me uh, quote Romans 10.9, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, that, uh, but the second way is our confession of faith. Our faith's confession, and this relates to uh, well, it, as it applies to the walk of faith, where we keep uh, the words of our mouth in line with the Word of God so that we are walking and speaking in agreement with God. And we emphasize that strongly in this church because of what the Bible says about A, the power of the tongue, and B, the power of agreement. If my words are in agreement with God's words, and, and if my words are powerful just because the tongue is powerful, then I'm speaking powerfully in agreement with God. So faith confession is important. Uh, we will dig into that a little more when we get a uh, little later in this series when we look at the subject of faith. By the way, um, April, I think it's 18th, David Beebe will be here, and I believe he's going to be sharing on the prayer of faith. Now, I don't know how many of you know who Dave Beebe is. He was a, uh, many years ago, he was a regional director uh, back when this region was a, a Rama regional director, and that was when it was, what, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, huh? Ohio. And uh, then he was a Rama instructor and a Rama dean for many years. He pastored for a while, and now he is uh, semi-retired but traveling, doing a lot of uh, traveling and speaking in churches, and he is wonderful. I know that you will really, really enjoy him. But again, I believe he's going to be speaking about the prayer of faith. And uh, the other way, so we've got our confession unto, uh, unto salvation. We've got the faith's confession. And uh, the third way, of course, the way we use the word confess is in reference to our sin, confessing our sin. Now, I'm going to start there, and perhaps the most famous passage with this usage is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this simple verse has caused a lot of arguments <laughs> and twisted many people into knots for this simple reason. If I must confess my sins to be forgiven, then what happens if I die unconfessed? How soon after sinning must I confess? How can I possibly remember all my sins? This was where Martin Luther really agonized. Uh, there is a, uh, we used to do a podcast here uh, really regularly, and we're going to fire it back up. I know we are. It took us a while to find our groove, but we started doing some interviews and having some specific discussions. And they're still online, the Living Word Family Podcast. Look it up and go back a couple years. What was it? Two, uh, two three years ago now, I guess. Well, and uh, we had Dr. Joe Thomas in, who's a professor of Christian history at Urbana Theological Seminary and an old friend of mine, but he was here for three parts 
speaking about um, uh, Luther and the Reformation. Now, and it, we invited him in to speak about that, and it turned out the whole first session was basically his testimony, which I think would bless you too. But the second one, uh, second and third one, are more uh, specifically about Luther and the Reformation. But he talks about how Luther, you know, he joined the monastery. His, his father was furious. father wanted him to be a lawyer or a businessman. Uh, and he had a sharp mind, but he wanted to serve God, wanted to please God. He figured the best way to do that is to become a monk, become a priest, whatever. So he, but when he read this about confessing sins, he became a confession addict. And he would go to his father confessor and spend hours remembering sins. Every sin he could remember. And after two-hour, three-hour confession period, he walked away, he said, uh, feeling good that he had finally cleansed himself and purged himself of all these sins by confession and then turned right around and went back to confess, feeling a twinge of pride at having confessed all of his sins. And the conf father confessor finally just told him, stop it, okay? So, uh, but this is it. And it opens up cans of worms concerning things like suicide. Well, if you can't be forgiven uh, unless you confess, how do you confess of a sin that kills you, right? Uh, the Greek word for confess is homologeo, and it means to agree. Literally, it means to say together or say the same thing, all right? Now, you take it by itself, and 1 John 1, 9 can cause some kind of confusion about the relationship between confession and forgiveness, so let's look at it in context and see if it clears anything up. Beginning in verse 8, it says this, if we, if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now that already clears it up a lot, doesn't it? But put it this way. If you claim to have no sin, you are saying, I have no need of forgiveness, I have no need for a savior. In fact, you're calling God a liar because he's the one who identifies every person, all of mankind, as sinners in need of a Savior. But if we agree with God, if we say about ourselves, if we say about our sin what God says, then he's faithful and just to forgive us. All we're doing when we confess is saying, God, you're right about me. I sin. and we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed. Now remember, three weeks ago, I made kind of a big deal about not going around saying, I am a sinner, or I'm a miserable sinner, just saved by grace, because it always sounds like you're just barely saved by grace, and it kind of diminishes the abundant grace that has indeed saved us. But thanks to the new birth, we are not that, are we? We are new creations in Christ. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. But we're still carrying something around with us that is infected with sinful tendencies. Do you know what that thing is? It's the flesh. It's our bodies. Our physical bodies. Now one of these days, we are going to get, at the general resurrection, we are going to get new bodies, glorified bodies, bodies that are free, unencumbered by sin. And those are going to be immortal bodies. Meanwhile, we're lugging these things around with us even though we, again, our essential selves, our spirits have been changed, been made new in Christ. Our bodies have not yet fully been redeemed. That doesn't mean healing is not ours. Healing is definitely spelled out as a 
as, as a uh, benefit that belongs to us. If we have inherited salvation, we have inherited healing. Uh, but that's kind of a first fruit of the full redemption of our bodies. And it's one of the criticisms, the, the cessationists, people who don't believe that healing is for today, that they believe the miracles that Jesus did, the healings he did, were only to prove that he was God. It ignores, it ignores a host of scriptures to take that position, but they say it, and one of the criticisms they will level at people like us who believe in healing is, well, if you believe in healing, if you believe it's always God's will to heal, then that means you believe we'll never die. That's not what we've ever claimed. Is it? It just means I don't think it's God's will that we die of sickness. I'd rather die of what they call natural causes. I'd rather die of old age. But even if I die of sickness, I'm going to go down fighting sickness because I don't see anything in Scripture that suggests sickness uh, and certainly dying of sickness is God's will for my life. Amen? Yeah. All right, so, uh, you know, death is not something we claim that we have been redeemed from, not physical death. Death, death uh, the Bible tells us death is an enemy. And in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians, says that uh, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But death will be destroyed. It's been defanged in the meantime. It doesn't impact us like it would if we weren't saved, right? But death itself will die. So, if you're keeping score, um, the answers, at least partially to the question from three weeks ago, which is, if we are new creatures, then why do we still sin? That's, that's at least part of the answer. And Jesus, by the way, he makes it even more clear. When he talks about the law, you know, he was telling, uh, telling the people, you've heard it said, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it say, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do no murder. But I'm telling you, if you hate your brother, if you call him an empty-headed fool, you've already committed murder and you're in danger of hellfire. What's the point he's making? The point he's making is, this is not a matter, the, the problem is not whether or not we can control our sinful urges. The problem is, we have sinful urges. That's what makes us polluted. That's what makes us sinners, not whether we act on them or not. He's saying, we are so far, we are so uh, conditioned to our fallen state that we think we're great because we have great self-control. And Jesus is reminding us, you weren't created to have to have self-control to keep from killing somebody. You were created free of murderous, hateful thoughts. You were created to be naturally monogamous okay so lust wasn't in the or the created order all of these things are things that infect us because we have inherited generation after generation after generation of sin so uh and, it, and it's funny because when, when you look at it that way the bible really does offer the clearest and uh most sensible explanation for why the world is in the mess it's in why people do the things they do, all the horrors, uh, sin is the best explanation. Buddhism, for just one example, uh, and I know there's many different strands of Buddhism, but, but I think mainstream Buddhism uh, doesn't believe in anything like the sin nature or the fallenness of man. They believe that we are born naturally in this, with this Buddha, whatever it is, the Buddha state, uh, and it's pure and it's free of sin, and, the, and that, but then it says, uh, the practice of Buddhism, and this usually takes place over the course of several lives, 
is to go through certain disciplines to rid ourselves of what? Wrong desires. Well, if I am born perfect with this Buddha nature, where are the wrong desires coming from? Makes much more sense to me to acknowledge that the Bible is true that says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, heart of a child. Every one of us. Why? Because of the sin nature. All right. Now, uh, as I said, our spirits are reborn. You are right now a new creature in Christ Jesus, if you have confessed Him as Lord. But we are we still have these bodies, and our bodies are still very responsive to sinful desires and tendencies the point for today though is that to confess our sin or our sins isn't a matter of reciting our sins to god or to a priest or or anybody else it's simply uh, biblically speaking especially in first john 1 9 it is agreeing with god that sin is present in our lives and that's a pretty easy thing to concede isn't it okay four of us agree with God that there is sin in our life. And if that's true, we need it, and we still need forgiveness, and we still need a Savior. Now, the other important meaning of confess, the one I mentioned first, is confession unto salvation. In addition to Romans 10, 9, and 10, there is this to drive home the meaning. In Matthew 10, beginning in verse 32, and I uh, referenced this last week, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I often uh, use the word believer as a synonym for Christian, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The Bible uses the word believer. But what about the person? And again, I think I covered this last week. I know I did. Who in their heart of hearts really does believe. They believe in God. They believe in Christianity. They believe the message of the cross. But for whatever reason, they're not ready, not willing to confess that belief. And the answer is, as scary as it seems, I don't see any biblical hope for that person. I don't see, I don't see that person being in any better shape than the person who doesn't believe. If you believe and don't confess, I don't think you're saved. It's not enough to believe, even in your heart. I was listening to an Eric Metaxas interview uh, from several weeks ago, uh, and you might not know this guy. He was, he was interviewing a well-known businessman, and you might not know the guy's name, but he is, uh, among other things, he was the co-inventor of PayPal. So he's a successful businessman. <laughs> And uh, Metaxas brought up a quote. He took this quote right off this guy's uh, Wikipedia page because this guy uh, was a confessing believer. He said he was in the interview. He says, here's this quote, and he shared it with him. He says, uh, I believe Christianity is true, but I don't sort of feel a compelling need to convince other people of that. And Metaxas just challenged him on it and actually got him to walk it back. And I was like... Way to go, man. He's kind of held his feet to the fire. He says, yeah, how can you say you're a Christian and not feel a compelling need to share it with somebody else because that's right from the mouth of Jesus. Go out and preach the gospel. Oh, well, yeah, you're right. You're, you know, you're right. I, I, I do share. It's not like I never, he just kind of, like I said, he backed up. And, but still, at least the guy had the courage on, you know, public forum 
on this podcast to uh, acknowledge Christ, publicly confess his belief in Christ. Less impressive to me is a statement by Winston Churchill, and many of you know I'm a huge Churchill fan. I think he may be the most important figure of the, of the 20th century, historically speaking. But somebody asked him, uh, you know, back when he was alive, they asked him uh, about his religion, and he said cryptically, all great men are of the same religion. And so they pressed him and said, what religion is that? And he said, the great men never tell. Yeah, that doesn't impress me at all. The entire history of Christianity is the story of bold men and women who publicly confessed Christ, often to their peril, often to the point of death. Get your hands on Fox's Book of Martyrs. Get your hands on uh, Jesus Freaks by DC Talk. It's kind of an updated version of that. And look at what people have endured just to confess Christ, just to uh, get the gospel, the word of God. You know, some people uh, went, went to the stake or, to, uh, or were hung or beheaded or drawn and quartered or whatever just for translating the Bible into another language. Sometimes it was the church that was doing the persecuting. All that to say that private Christianity or secret Christianity is not biblical Christianity. Now I understand in some areas of the world the church has to be underground in terms of its public gathering, but they are, it, that's different from somebody privately holding a belief all by themselves and never confessing it to anybody. And we here in America, bad as things might be, bad as thing, you think things might be getting, still so far have no excuse to not publicly confess Christ. Now, uh, this is the, actually the uh, perfect segue into the other subject I wanted to address at least briefly this morning, because biblically speaking, apart from our literal, oral, confession of faith, the most profound confession we can make of our Christianity is water baptism. Water baptism. Baptism and salvation are so closely linked in Scripture that legitimate disagreements have endured for centuries about whether or not it's necessary to be baptized to be saved. Probably the most contentious passage is Mark chapter 16, begin in verse 15. And he said to them, he being Jesus, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, first of all, there are people, <laughs> they, they hang their hat on that passage. I mean, they'll find other, there are other passages, we're going to look at least one more, but they'll say, Jesus himself said, he who believed and is baptized will be saved. The same people will dismiss everything he said after that. These signs shall follow those that believe, <laughs> right? And that lists them, including speaking in tongues and uh, healing the sick and, and uh, so forth. And you ask him, well, why are you throwing that away? And some of, the, some of these people say, well, really, everything after uh, Matthew 9, uh, or, or sorry, after, after verse 9 uh, in Mark 16 there is suspect. It wasn't in the original manuscript. Okay, then why are you hanging your hat on the verse that says he who is baptized, saved and is baptized? Why can't you throw the whole thing away? Now, just to dispense with that, by the way, it's true that three of the oldest um, manuscripts do not contain the last half of uh, Mark 16, but every, practically every other 
early source does. Uh, there's good, good historical reason for keeping it in there. Um, and everything that's said there is said in one way or another in other parts of the Bible. But notice also what it doesn't say there. He who, is, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he doesn't say he who does not believe and or is not baptized shall be condemned. It just says he, if he, doesn't, if he, he who does not believe will be condemned. So, look at this. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, this is after, right at the end of, uh, of Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, verse 37, Acts 2, 37, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now in Acts 8, we read about Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, starting in verse 36, we read, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's his confession unto salvation. And, Philip, and then, um, so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. So this is how... The question comes up, is baptism simply an ordinance, something that Jesus and the, uh, the, the God has ordained for us to do, or is it a sacrament? A sacrament is commonly defined as uh, something that has to be done. It is, it, is how, it is part of how salvation is delivered to you, or a level of salvation is achieved. Certain uh, sects of Christianity have, have several different sacraments. Um, but a softer definition of sacrament is simply a means of grace. I like that. Now, does God participate? When we take communion, does God participate in that act? Does he deliver something to us, impart something to us when we partake of the Lord's table? I believe he does. I believe communion is a means of grace. I believe baptism is a means of grace. And if you define sacrament like that, then we can call it a sacrament. We just got to be careful to define our terms. But the necessity of baptism uh, has generated some pretty silly arguments, uh, or at least some illustrations. The, the, the question we used to ask our friends who believed strongly in the necessity of, of water baptism is, what if you confess Christ, and so you desire to be baptized, and you trip, and you fall, and you break your neck on the way to the baptistry? Are you saved? And I've had people tell me, no. No. Uh, I brought up the, the question once, what if you were being baptized? And you know, this, this, this is a true story, by the way. I don't know how many times it's happened, but I remember reading it in the news about a, a minister with a wired microphone on, went to baptize somebody, and both he and the guy he was, he was baptizing were electrocuted. So what happens to that person? I mean, they went down, but they didn't come back up. Does that count? I asked a... a uh, a pastor one time who believed strongly in it, I said, what about a person who is, say there's a plane crash and you got two survivors and they're walking through the desert. One is a believer, one's an unbeliever. The believer shares his testimony with the unbeliever. 
This guy says, you've convinced me. I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no water to be baptized with. And they perish in the desert. Do you know what his answer was? God would never allow that to happen. He would never move on somebody to be saved and confess belief if there weren't water for baptism. All right. I think <laughs> it makes much more biblical sense that, that our, our confession is unto salvation. But I believe one of the most, again, other than our saying with our mouth and believing in our heart, I believe the next most important confession of our salvation is water baptism. I believe we have maybe undersold the importance of water baptism because we, we, we focus so much on con, uh, believing and confessing. There are three main reasons there is such a huge emphasis on baptism in the church and in the, in the Bible. Number one, it is an imitation of Christ. Some things Christ did as our substitute, some things he did as our example. He was baptized by John the Baptist as our example, and we are certainly to follow him in baptism. Second, it is a powerful and tangible and visible expression of what happens when we are born again. The going down into the water signifies our death and burial with Jesus Christ, and our coming up out of the water signifies our resurrection, being raised to new life with him. Third, and this is super important, it is simply an act of humility and obedience. One last story, and then we will close. This is from... Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, and I'll just paraphrase it rather than have you turn there, but you remember there was a guy, named, he, he was a Syrian general. His name was Naaman, and he had uh, the trust of the king, and during one of the raids into Israel, he had taken a, a little Israeli girl captive, and she worked as a servant in his house. But he was a good master. She loved him. And Naaman was well regarded, a man of honor, but he was a leper. He was unclean, and this really was a... a it's a bad thing back in the day. It really reduced your social standing. And this Israeli uh, slave girl said, if only my master were in Israel, the prophet there could heal him. The prophet she was speaking of was Elisha. Now he hears this, so he goes to the king. He says, this girl, this uh, Israeli slave girl we have, says there's somebody in Israel that can heal my leprosy. And so the king says, I'll write you a letter of introduction. You take it to the king of Israel. Go with my blessing. So he goes to the king. His letter comes to the king, and he says, look. And, and, and the letter simply says, I am sending Naaman to you so you may heal him. He says, I, who am I? This guy thinks I'm God to, to kill and make alive. He's just trying to start a fight. Well, Elisha hears about it and says, send him to me, and when he leaves, he'll know there's a God in Israel. So Naaman goes. Uh, with his, He's got this, uh, uh, his posse with him, and they're bringing some expensive clothes. They're bringing some gold. They're bringing some silver. They're going to pay for this. Um, so they, they, and, and Elisha sees them coming or knows in the spirit that they're coming and instead of going out to meet him he sends his servant Gehazi out there and says tell him this so Gehazi goes out and says my master Elisha says you must do this go to the Jordan and dip seven times in it and you'll be clean and Naaman's what's his reaction he's furious I'm a general and I came all this way not to talk to some peon but to meet the prophet and I don't want to have to do anything. I thought surely he was going to come out. It says this. I thought he'd surely come out and wave his hands over the place and heal me. He wanted this charismatic healing service type healing. He says, if all I have to do is bathe, I'll go back home because we have better waters in Syria. 
And he starts to leave. And one of his men says, with all due respect, sir, if he'd told you to do some hard thing, you'd have done it. He's telling you to do one simple thing. Isn't it worth it? So he does. He dips in the water seven times and comes up and says his skin looked like that of a young boy. He was totally clean and totally thankful. But what did he have to do to receive that? Humble himself. So when we say, well, come on, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to serve him. Why do I have to do something silly like being baptized? Everybody's eyes are on me. I'm going to look silly coming up out of the water. My hair's going to be a mess. My clothes are going to be clinging to me. And it's just, it's just silly. I don't have to get wet to be saved. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of humbling yourself. And if you can't do that, what's, what else is he going to trust you with? Something simple like baptism. i got bigger things for you to do. But let's start with something simple. Be baptized. All right? It opens the door to obey him in bigger things. All right? Now, having said praise the worship team. Quickly, get up here. Hurry, hurry. No. <laughs> Sorry, I should have given you a heads up there. Uh, we already had the altar call. Real quick, while they're coming up, uh, stand up, stand up. You've been sitting a while. Sorry, I'm going to try to hurry this up because we've got a, a, a leader's lunch for small groups here in five minutes. <laughs> uh, anybody else want to get saved? Say, I, yep, I should have done it earlier, but I desire to confess Christ. I don't want to leave here without Jesus Christ being my Lord. Is that you? Anybody? So Jesus is everybody's Lord. Those of you who have confessed Christ, have you been baptized? If you haven't, will you be baptized? Here's all I'm asking you to do. Contact the office this week. We haven't done one since COVID, but we will find a way to do it safely. I will do the research, and we will find a way to baptize you. If you have been saved, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. And if you're like, well, I was baptized as a baby, and then I got saved later. I think you need to be baptized. I think biblical baptism is subsequent to coming to faith in Christ. Okay? So we've, we've gotten everybody saved who, who's going to get saved today. We've gotten people recommitted today. We've got people filled with the Spirit today. I believe we're going to have some people this week reach out and contact us. We'll have a baptism here real soon. Everybody else remember this. If you've made a commitment, if you've made a confession of faith, Somehow, people know you are a Christian. And since they know you are a Christian, you have a responsibility. You go back up there and read that passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, you'll see that that's the next thing he says. Is that, you know, after being ready to give an account for the hope that's within you, he talks about keeping your behavior a certain way so that the people who are ridiculing you will be brought to faith by watching you. For the sake of fellow believers for the sake of the church at large and for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the world, keep living your life in a way that reflects that confession of faith. Amen? Uh, I'm going to pray to close here in just a minute. Pastor Mike will be up here to pray with those of you who need prayer for healing or anything else, agree with you in faith. Um, remain, everybody else remain there. Uh, after the prayer, the ushers will dismiss you by row. Don't forget the pizza sales out there. The girls' ministry and rangers will be, will be uh, selling pizza kits. Get some. And small group leaders, join us for lunch as soon as you can. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this service. Thank you again for your presence in this place today. 
thank you, Lord, for saving us, for healing us, for filling us with your Spirit. I thank you for those who are freshly baptized in the Holy Spirit today. God, you're a good God. For those who came back, who recommitted, rededicated their lives, live powerfully in them, Lord, to protect them and continue to encourage them and us to do the things you've called us to do, to be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, all the believers said, Amen. God bless you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.